When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, welcome to United Hour. I'm your host, Imran. And today we've got a very special podcast with a very special guest. Um, he is the senior sports writer for the times i'd like to introduce you all to matt dickinson matt welcome to united hour thank you for inviting me plenty to talk about i think there's plenty of talk to talk about of united at the moment um matt has just recently published a book in fact it's out today i believe um entitled 1999 manchester united the treble and all that uh, it's a fantastic book that we will get into into more detail in a moment um but just to start matt um you, you were the one who broke the story about Sir Jim Ratcliffe being interested in potentially buying Man United or wanting to become involved in Man United in the future. Um, what do you, do you think sets this one apart? I mean, we've been there before as United fans, you know, people wanting to buy the club and then it never materialised and we're just stuck with the Glazers constantly. Do you, th- do you think there's anything about this one that sets it apart? Well, I think it's different from from yeah the the buyer's end in the sense of you know we we know that he is a very rich man for starters. We know that he um, is definitely interested in sport, both professionally and personally. You know, Ineos have got involved in all sorts of sports, including football at Nice in in the French league. They you know then they're, they're not messing around there. They've spent a lot of money this summer to try and get into the Champions League. We know that he tried, obviously, you know, left it too late to bid for Chelsea, but, you know, was came to that table. And we know he's a Man United fan who is approaching, the way he has put it to me when we've talked before, is that he's approaching 70. He's got billions uh, in the bank, basically. And, he, you know, he wants to use it to live life to the full. And sport is one way of doing that. So, you know, I think he's, you know, he also doesn't strike me as a sort of flaky character. Um, you know, he's, he hasn't built a petrochemicals business from scratch and become a billionaire without, you know, um, being a fairly sort of serious player. So for all those reasons, I think his interest is there. But at the same time, the, the, the but, and there's a big but, is that we're dealing with the Glazers. And... Mm-hmm. You know, no one knows exactly what they want. No one knows exactly, you know, we've got all kinds of bits of information and rumour and speculation um, about their plans. We know that Old Trafford needs an absolute fortune spending on it and they're not the type who are going to just say, well, we'll we'll pay for that, are they? So there's a lot of sense that adds up. Um, There's six siblings and only two of them engage in the football team. So there's lots of reasons why it's does seem that they're inviting some kind of injection of, but whether that 
becomes a partnership with Ratcliffe, whether Ratcliffe can buy the club, I'm afraid I would have to say there's some massive ifs and buts still to be uh, addressed. Yeah, there's one thing being interested in buying Man United. There's a whole other thing to actually be able to. Uh, we've seen the Glazers this week want to sell off minority shares, and that's looking like an American investment fund already in line for that. So even that is kind of closed off. Um, from and from your perspective on the kind of inside track and journalism circles, what impression of the like of the Glazers do you get in terms of? They're wanting this sticker. Do you, do you get much information from them at all? Is it is it it's, quite of a closed door compared to other clubs? Oh, it's it's you know it's the it's the most um, closed door in football almost. I mean, you know, we 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 you know we pick around the the sort of edges of the Glazers as much as we can, and you know there are two or three people who are sort of licensed to, to um, shall we say, speak on their behalf at at times. But even that is sort of painful and comes out in a dribble and you know, often is a question of sort of trying to read between the lines. I mean, I know in the last year, since the Super League debacle that, the you know, Joel Glazer's come on a couple of Zoom calls, there's been talk of fan involvement and share scheme and stuff. But, you know, that's still to be proved to be more than platitudes. Um, you know, my, my approach to the Glazers as a journalist, it probably reflects a lot of the approach of the fans to the Glazers, which is... Um, you know, I'll believe it when I see it and I'll sort of assume the worst um, otherwise because everything we've seen about the club, the way it's run, the priorities, you know, the way that the performance culture has been eroded year after year, the way Ed Woodward ran it, um, transfer strategy, you know, we could go on and on. Um, yeah, has left us thinking that these are particularly uh, poor owners of a football club and they just happen to own the one of the most obviously celebrated and successful in the history of football. Well, yeah, we talk about how it's run, and I think nothing has been more apparent about the way United has run or lack of cohesion with its run with this summer. I, I'm personally, as I'm a United fan, I've never known a summer like this um, in terms of just transfer rumours, things happening here, there and everywhere. So, I mean... Uh, we've got a guy on the podcast called Nick. He lives and die by the BBC. If it's on the BBC, it's accurate. And the BBC this year have actually put us in, we've been confirmed deals with a lot of players that just uh, haven't happened. Have you have you ever seen a summer like this, especially for a well, club like United? I, I think the worst thing about it is, is the fact that it should have been a reset summer. You know, you've got a new um, a TV exec, effectively, Richard Arnold, who's come in after Woodward. You know, Wood, Woodward, we, we know, made a mess of things, but... It, Richard Arnold also had a running start to this summer. You know, it wasn't like he arrived in the middle of it. We also, you know, and he's been at the club for ages. We knew that Eric Ten Hag, you know, he wasn't appointed midsummer. He, we knew he was coming, you know, with plenty of time to get a window sorted out. You know, there, there are so many reasons why it should have been a summer where everyone could say, ah, you know what, we've hit rock bottom. And this is, you know, this is, this is where it starts getting some credibility back. And instead, you know, it's been the opposite. I mean, obviously, Casemiro, we can debate about, you know, I mean, he, he is obviously a, a well-established player. But the fact is that even that, you know, you suddenly think, well, why is this suddenly appearing so late? Why is it it's a different profile to the other players we're talking about? And, yeah, I, I mean, Eric Ten Hag should have been arriving and being told, by the way, we have just done two, three years' work setting up these targets. We know the five centre-backs who are the best in Europe. You know, do you, if you want Koulibaly, we can go and get him for X. If we want, a, you know, the 20-year-old version, we can get for Y. Instead, obviously, the sign Martinez, because that's what he knew that, uh, you know, with and the, the Dutch league is different 
from the English league. And we're already seeing some of the, the, the ramifications of that. So, yeah, uh, I mean, in the short, it, it, it should have been uh, a summer where there was a big reset, different people doing it differently. And instead, we've just seen one problem after the other. And, of you know, Ronaldo's another, you know, I mean, basically the coach has got a real problem with him. No one else will take him. It's a mess. And, um, you know, the club has to hope that that does not become a mess that hangs over the dressing room for months after months. Well, we'll see what happens with Ronaldo as the, the window ticks by. But all this depressing current Man United is not what we're here to talk about. No, no, no. We are here to talk about possibly the greatest season of all time in English football. Certainly as my sporting United of 35 years, my favourite season of all time. The 1999 season. Uh, Matt has written a, written a wonderful book. Uh, Man United, the treble and all that. Uh, it's out now. It is genuinely a fantastic read. Um Matt, what was the what was the inspiration for this book? I mean, obviously we just had the twenty years a couple of years ago, but what what made you want to go back and revisit this this season? I think to be honest, there's it's uh, a few things. I mean, one, I mean, you know, uh, obviously it remains the most uh, the simple fact remains the most successful season by an English football club ever, and you know we've seen how close. Liverpool and Man City seem to have got in the last couple of years. You know, there was obviously lots of talk of quadruples at one stage, you know, um, and, yeah, they've fallen short. And that's underlined just how unbelievably hard it is to get to get a treble, never mind a quadruple. Um, so, you know, there is the uniqueness of the feat. There is the fact that as a reporter, every time, you know, I meet up um, as a, uh, bald, older, graying bloke, and we have reminiscences about, you know, the glory days. Um, somehow the stories always end up back at Ferguson era, back at this this cha- this uh, campaign in particular. It's just where it's where there was the most fun to be had as a reporter. You're following these, you know, biggest team in the world with um, some of the most amazing games in the world, and crucially, some I think some of the most interesting characters that I've ever come across. The feat is one thing, the treble, but actually I think what makes, hopefully makes this book interesting and makes the story interesting is that we are talking about a dressing room that is full of of absolutely mesmerising people. Roy Keane, I mean, to younger audience, obviously they see him now as this, uh, you know, feisty, fiery pundit. I mean, imagine seeing that in midfield every week um, and uh, the intensity of that. David Beckham becomes the most famous, you know, athlete on the planet Gary Neville we see every week who has become you know all these guys um Peter Schmeichel not just in the perhaps one of the you know, perhaps the world's greatest goalkeeper but a huge interesting character could go on York and Cole become this amazing partnership and it's not just a partnership of skills and talents but of personalities and so uh, you know I was lucky enough to be there at the time to cover it to be up closer then than we can get now you know in that time we traveled with the team on planes on european trips we could be you know i've been lucky enough to do gary neville's autobiography i did a book with beckham so there was a bit more of an intimacy as well so all these things combined to make me just think hang on a minute this was the greatest season ever it was the most fascinating season ever it was the most dramatic season ever it was the most amazing personalities and uh, you know there's a, if there's not a book in that then um i'm in, I'm, I'm in the wrong job basically well, it's told wonderfully well um, through many, many chapters. Um, we were talking just before we came on about how I enjoyed the shortness of these chapters. Um, each one, I think maximum, maybe five, six pages each chapter. And 
did that come about organically through the fact that there's just so many characters there's so many stories to tell yeah it's a really good question and it was it was like a eureka moment to understand i can't claim the credit for myself i i you know i knew i wanted to go back there and see it and I, also i knew what i didn't want to do is write some big stodgy you know this happened in September, this happened in October, you know, it was, I wanted it to be chronological because that makes sense, but I didn't want it to be just a sort of report of matches that everyone knows about. I wanted it to feature these characters and lots of interesting quirks. Like one chapter um, is about the kid, Alex Notman, who- that is my, Can I just say that was my favorite chapter in the book. A person I've not thought about for 20 years. And he just brilliant. Like well, that name. Yeah. Exactly. So people, you know, a couple of mates have said, oh, you know, what, what was the best bit? Expecting me to say, well, you know, having an hour with David Beckham or, you know, getting the inside track from Teddy Sheringham. But so for those who don't know, Alex Notman was a, a very promising kid at United at the time. And in the middle of, of the treble season, it's the, uh, the League Cup and he comes on uh, as a substitute. So he's made his debut. You know, he is, he's hit the big time in his eyes and uh, he's playing in the treble season. And the next day he comes into training and Alex Ferguson sits him down and says, son, you know, you're on your way now. You know, there's a whole Man United career waiting for you. And uh, as without spoiling too much surprise, he never plays for the club again. And, and when we spoke, he was a gas engineer living near Norwich. And, you know, I, I sort of, I didn't know any of that when I first started the story, it sort of slipped off my radar and, uh, you know, I'm sure most United fans radar, but I wanted to feature him because A, it shows how thin the line is between, you know, glory and ending up as a, you know, with respect to gas engineer in Norwich and B, it just also underlines, I guess, how special the skulls and the Nevilles and gigs and Beckham are to have made it to have you know that that line is that thin and it takes not just talent but you know awful lot of character and luck and everything else to to suddenly find you've played 500 games for Man United so yeah so to, that I guess is one snapshot of where I thought if I do 99 chapters I can bring in a character like Alex Notman actually give him I think the the space and the respect he deserves um whereas in another book you know a different format you know that could get reduced to a couple of paragraphs and almost feel lost in it so yeah I'm really pleased you like the format it, it it say when as soon as I realized it was a different way of doing it instantly I was like great I I, I love that and I think it allows me to tell all these different uh, stories that otherwise might 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 sort of fall away yeah as a, as a United fan I cannot and, and a self-professed non- book reader i can't recommend this book enough to fellow united fans and to football fans it just it's such an easy pick up and read and you'll end up reading five or six chapters before you know it it's, i cannot recommend it enough but anyway going back you you mentioned obviously you talked to a lot of players um for this book um york sheringham jesper blumvist andy cole a whole range how how willing do you find them to talk about this season than say other topics when you've come across them in the past how how much fire inside them do you see about talking about the 99 season yeah, well, I mean, they were all, I mean, um, yeah, I, I mean, the ones I got hold of obviously were, were, I mean, for most of them, it's like, you know, basically, do you mind sparing some time to talk about, you know, the greatest season of your life? And it's, you know, ha ha happy days. Wh why wouldn't I? But there are complications even with that. I mean, uh, Teddy Sheringham was one of the most, I mean, Teddy at the time, um, as dealing as a journalist, could be quite aloof. And, you know, he... he yeah, he wasn't the easiest to uh, to sort of get to get to and to get to know. And 
um, you know, I think you know, it's not just me saying that. He, he would say that himself, that he, he, he could be like that at the time. But it's actually now going back and talking with 20 years perspective, he would really opened up about actually it was hard for him. You know, everyone thinks, ah, oh, you won the treble, you scored at the new Camp, those, you know, happy days. And actually he said, no, it was that year was really tough. Um, he said his United career was really tough. He didn't feel he fitted in the dressing room that well. You know, there was a class of 92 sort of gang. And then there was York and Cole. And he had a terrible relationship with Andy Cole that people know about. And what I didn't know about till we sat down and had never come out before was that he had this shocking relationship with Roy Keane as well. I mean, he, he wasn't, he was about to, he, he wasn't sure where to tell that story. And in the end, he just went, oh, you know, sod it. Um, uh, you know, there's enough water under the bridge. And um, yeah, so I don't know if people have seen the extracts um, that the Times had, but basically him and basically they were in a minibus with a few of the, the lads and Keane suddenly turned around and basically tried to fight him and um, called him, you know, F off back to London, your Cockney and your Ferrari and your penthouse and, and it all kicked off. And um, Keane never spoke to him again for three years as, as teammates. And, uh, you know, it's we, we can laugh about it now, but you imagine at the time, you know, you're in this dressing room, you know, um, and again, that's the, the complex dynamics of that. I, I just found fascinating. Everyone must think or easily thinks, you know, they won the treble. They must have been this band of brothers. It must have been, you know, uh, this amazing team spirit. And it was just really interesting to me as a sports writer and studying greatness and what makes greatness. Actually, it's way more complicated than that. And, and there was all this, you know, Roy Keane and Peter Schmeichel at times wanted to rip each other's heads off. But I guess that's the genius of Alex Ferguson was that all this stuff was going on and yet he kept everyone on the straight and narrow. And I, I, I guess it takes a special leader and a special manager to have these big alpha, you know, players in a dressing room and, you know, not just a few of them to have, you know, 15 of them and to keep them, you know, basically to allow a certain amount of, uh, of, um, you know, macho feistiness, but somehow, you know, keep, keep everyone's eyes on the prize basically. Yeah. I think the thing that comes across really well in the book is just the characters of the, like the, the, Obviously, there's obviously a lot of football covered in the book and we talk about the games, but it's really the characters of these people and what made them the people they are. We talk about how Andy Cole's a bit of an introvert, how Roy Keane is Roy Keane, everyone knows how Roy Keane is, how Gary Neville's a bit of a pupil, how close those guys were. It's fascinating insight into these people as characters. Um, how, like, you, I don't feel like these days you just get a, a dressing room like that anymore. It's such a different time almost. Um, do you kind of miss it in a way? <laughs> I do well. I think you know. I missed. I mentioned before. I miss. We miss the intimacy as a journalist. I definitely do because, you know, I think it did. I think they certainly as well had a sort of boldness that that you know in dealings with with us, the media. They they you know used to have real old ding dongs. I mean, I think I mentioned you know in the book. I think I tell a story of once I did an. Inter we were going out to the Borussia Dortmund '97 um, uh, semi final, um, the first leg. And I did an interview at the airport with Peach Michael when I, I asked him, you know, how do you think this team would get on against the 68 team? And he said, oh, we'd, we'd probably beat them 10 nil because, you know, you see how fast they run and how fast we run. And it, I got his point and he put it in context, but obviously stick that in the headline <laughs> and it, it didn't look so clever. So anyway, and then he got injured that, that for that game. United obviously lost 1-0 in Germany, didn't make it to the final. And next thing I know, I've got a six foot four Danish goalie 
running at me on the way back, screaming, saying, you know, you stitched me up, you X, Y, Z. And uh, we had a, you know, we had a right old, shall we say, ding dong about it. But that's, that's what, we, that's what we loved as journalists, that there was that relationship. And, you know, it was Peter Schmeichel, like, we, you know, we got over it and, you know, it, um, life, life, life moved on. But I, I loved the fact that there was that, you know, um, close up and personal, they knew who we were. Um, and, you know, if you wrote something that someone didn't like, you would hear about it quite, quite soon, especially obviously where Alex Ferguson was, in, was, mm -hmm. was, so I don't want to be, you know, I'm probably in a danger of saying, you know, sounding too like, oh, they were the good old days, but I, you know, yeah, there's now to be a football reporter now is still an amazing job, but I do think you know, now you tend to be dealing much more with agents or representatives or mm. the brother of the player, you know, the mum or the dad, rather than the player themselves. That just shows how the media has changed, how the size of football fame and celebrity has changed as well. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When we talk about characters, there is no, I feel, bigger character in this team than Roy Keane. And Roy Keane's an interesting one in this book because, I mean, to, to give a bit of the book away, they're often split. It's split into chapters and then often players will co-op chapters and the players take up chapters more towards the beginning. But Roy Keane, he's there throughout. He's always there. He's a menace. He's always there. And then he gets his he gets his call at the end, obviously, when the Juventus come into play. But I probably would say Roy probably mentioned probably the second most after Fergie, maybe. Do you feel like his his footprints are all over this season and all over this book? He is there a bigger character than Roy Keane? And the stuff that he did for this season is is incredible. No, I think it's, it's interesting you spotted that because I, I was very conscious of it because I started off and the book again without yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's spoiling anything. The, the book is actually bookended by Beckham. Um, effectively, because he gets the sending off in the '98 uh, uh, World Cup, obviously, and he's coming back off that, and he's this national scapegoat, and um, and it finishes not just with the new camp, but Posh and Beck's the wedding. Um, you know, which sort of tells a bit of a circle of sort of redemption for for him. But and I, you know, when I first started the project, I wondered if it was Beckham was going to be almost the, you know, the sort of the main character, basically, the sort of you know. Hero, the sort of biggest hero of the story but at, the more I did it the more keen 100% emerged as absolutely the sort of thread through the book the same way he is through that team um I think you know it was I, I knew obviously he'd been injured the season before but it was only coming to the research that and speaking to um, the physio at United at the time that I realized just how 
so yes, it was a different, totally different Roy Keane that comes back. You know, he's, uh, you know, he, he was just insanely competitive. He was determined to absolutely make the best of, of a, almost like a second chance after serious injury. And, you know, he, um, you know, the chat I described a tackle he does in the, in the, the charity shield coming back where he just throws himself at the air. You know, he's coming back from a cruciate knee uh, ligament you know most players would be sort of feeling their way back and he's like no way I'm just you know I'm, I'm coming at you and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my trophies back basically and uh, he I, I think it's still one of the great underrated seasons you know he next the following year he wins um, PFA and Football Writers Players of the Year it's it's nuts to me that he didn't um, win it that year when I spoke to the players I said who was your who would have been your vote and they said Roy Keane by a mile you know, I think Teddy Sheringham, even Teddy Sheringham, who obviously fell out with with Roy, said, if, you know, if he wasn't there for a training session, it was less intense. There's, you know, it wasn't just matches. Every day, Roy Keane kept this team on their on their toes to, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, in, insane level. And and I think, you know, he was at his peak physically. He was more determined than ever, and he was, you know, he was absolutely the engine of of the treble it doesn't it doesn't happen without him you know and that's even without just sort of one-off games like Turin obviously away when you know it definitely doesn't happen without him no um but not as good as David Ginola we have to we have to concede that's <laughs> well yeah well I, I'd say I, I think I try and get my so yeah for people who don't know uh, David Ginola, David Ginola wins the uh football of the year that that year which is still a sort of you know embarrassment for 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 the organizations that um put him up there i mean he uh you know he had a couple of good few i mean he was a, a wonderful player to watch but um he hit form at the right time yes the fergie couldn't stand him because he was a diver and called him called him such um and also there was the fact that the voting was basically before any of the trophies had been sorted so it was sort of skewed by that and actually this because of it the system changed to push the voting back as late as possible but yeah i mean you know, you would have had any sensible vote by the end of May would have had, you know, Keane, York and Stam and Beckham ahead of Ginola without mm. any without any question. So, yeah, Beckham is another one uh, throughout the book. Again, you start with him, you finish with him. It's um, it's quite like we go back now and think about the vitriol that he had. And it is quite staggering, actually. If you if you weren't alive at the time, if you're very young and you were there, it, it's beyond what you probably could imagine. I mean... If Jack Grealish, for instance, I mean, I'm picking Jack Grealish because he's sort of a similar character. If he got sent off in a, a World Cup semi quarterfinal in Qatar, could you even see it being half of what Beckham got? No, I mean, I think it was. It is interesting to sort of look back, obviously, as a journalist and look back on just think, well, yeah, wow, what, what, you know, what, what was it that was that made it so? I mean, I think one thing is this is pre-social media, you know, it's before the internet, and I think newspapers had. There was more power basically in 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 the the mainstream newspaper industry and i think that dictated and well tried to reflect and dictate a public mood at the same time so if the front page of a of a newspaper particularly obviously a, a sort of mass market um you know tabloid paper felt like it was sort of you know it was absolutely the 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 public opinion so when the mirror do a big headline and a, is it 10 10 heroic lions one stupid boy you know i mean that that the power of that was just immense and it fueled this yeah as you say i mean utter vitriol i mean you know we had 
absolute people camps outside the the Beckham family house, the parents' house, the grandparents' house. Um, it was you know dartboards. With, I mean, I interviewed Piers Morgan for the book, and when you have Piers Morgan um, saying, "I think we went too far," then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, this is this is a guy who's like you know anti cancel culture, you know, freedom of speech, everything goes, you know. Uh, opinion on everything um but, but yeah even he said you know what I, I look back and just think yeah we went over the top so that 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 just shows you and it was there was a lot of questions serious questions time could he come back to, could he even play in england would he just flee straight away would he was it going to be unbearable um and which just shows you you know the level of scorn that was you know i mean in some ways you know everyone has a voice on twitter um but you can you know you can turn it off, ignore it. But at the time, it felt like Beckham was literally physically being hounded. He was being chased everywhere he went. Mm. And um, just go again, show us the mental, the, men, the mental strength that he has and the character of everyone, not just him, but everyone in the squad. Again, you're touching it a lot, the mental strength that they all have. It's, it's quite something. And then another big character in the book, well, not a big character in the book necessarily, but another who I quite enjoy when he ever chips in is Dwight York. Just seems like the most cheerful, <laughs> lovely man alive um, yeah no and, and such a such a contrast to the rest of them i mean i think that's that was again i mean ferguson and i think you know he he, he admits himself that he was a bit lucky with this um you know dwight york was on his radar he admired him as a player he, he thought yeah this there was this really versatile forward he could play on the wing he could play as a 10 he could play as a nine you know technical and physical but you know he chased other targets i mean if patrick cliver had said i'm coming then dwight york probably never never ends up there or you know what combination of forward they chase after patrick cliver bid for patrick cliver um who was at ac milan have a bid accepted and who knows how his you know it's one of those sliding doors moments of how history could have could have been different but cliver goes off to barcelona instead um wins one league in four years which i'm sure gives you know united fans and fergus fergie a chuckle um but and Dwight York comes right on the deadline. Um, and uh, you've got this dressing room that's just full of, of, as we've talked about, these, you know, sort of insanely intense characters. And Dwight York turns up and starts doing keepy-uppy, telling jokes, high fives, um, saying, right, who's, you know, who's coming, who's coming off to the bar? And I think I, say in, I think I say in the book, it's like introducing a sort of Hawaiian shirt and a cocktail bar into Salford I mean that's that was the cultural sort of difference that Dwight York had in terms of his his just sort of you know this is fun you know this is meant to be pressure this is he says like you know I'm one minute I'm playing for Aston Villa and now I'm joining Man United and I've got Beckham and Giggs hitting crosses in I mean what's not to like <laughs> and it's not only the impact he had with that confidence because you know people will know that you know, there's a lot of players, especially strikers, who have basically died a death at United because of the pressure and expectation. Um, and Andy Cole had struggled at times. You know, he scored goals, he'd won trophies, he'd had a respectable time at United, but I don't think he'd really fired. And it was only when Dwight York turns up and basically says, "Mate, you know, I, you know, I'm here. I'm here to play alongside you. I'm here to bring out the best in you." That he actually relaxed, and suddenly there was this incredible double act. Which, um, you know, I mean, they scored. Yeah, I think I talk in the book. Well, I want to say yeah. thank. I want to say thank you because you have a chapter fully dedicated to my favourite goal in Manchester United history, which is the Andy Cole goal at the Camp Nou, which is 
just beautiful. It's, it's it, I, as you describe it. It is like art being played out. That's your favorite. Your favorite United goal. My favorite ever. United goal. Uh, wow. Definitely. Yeah. Probably. I mean, yeah. it might change on a different day, but reading that, <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's back to number one again. But it's, it is just a, a fabulous goal. And you even said um, Ole used it when he was coaching. They make yeah, yeah. it to, to see yeah, if they could have it's... that chemistry. So it's just a fantastic goal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a, and I think like all the best um, football, it is, it is both intricate and simple. You know, there's something, I mean, the, you know, the, the sort of, the one-two, we, we all learn that at, you know, age, age sort of eight years old on the part, but to be able to do it, with the speed and the accuracy and the simplicity that they do just to go one, two, one, two, to slice through a defense in Barcelona, in the new camp, in another humdinger of a, of a cup tie. And again, it's the way Andy Cole, who at times had looked, you know, anxious and, and um, you know, snatching shots and stuff, the way he just finishes like, this is fun. And, you know, even Andy Cole is now looking like I'm here to enjoy myself, to score goals. Um, yeah, I mean, again, just fascinating to see the personalities and how they gelled like that. That's just one, obviously, there's a lot of the book is de- dedicated to the football. And what I found quite exciting or interesting for me was when you were describing the football, but all just, I mean, the 99 season, I watched it a load when I was a kid. And then, but yeah, I haven't watched the season highlights of that for a long time, but then it all comes flooding back when you're describing it. Did you find out when you were going back to research it, when you're looking at the footage, that it all just came flooding back as well and all these things, all these these memories? And you remember, oh, I remember this goal. And, well, is yeah, that? I mean, I'd, 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 you know, I mean, shame on me that I'd actually forgotten. I mean, I went back and obviously looking at my own sort of journey through, and um, you know, the the Liverpool uh, FA Cup game comeback. I mean, I'd, I'd, you know, it was really interesting me to go and read back my own report from doing it, and I'd just forgotten how deafening that 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 day was because it was a cup tie, and that meant that Liverpool had more allocation of fans. I think they had, you know, huge. Um, uh, I think it might have been eight, eight, ten thousand. It would be eight thousand behind the, the yeah. side, yeah. Yeah, and and to, so just reading back to remember that what you know because we tend to think you know chewing away, we tend to think um, the Villa Park with a replay, you know, we tend to think of the New Camp games or whatever. But uh, yeah, just to read back and just think, wow, that game in itself was like epic, and the noise was deafening, and the tension became excruciating. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I, some of the games. I mean, obviously, I watched back all the goals, and I watched back plenty of highlights. But yeah, three or four games, I managed to obviously go back and, and literally watch. You know, sometimes you try and watch back an old game and think, mm, is this going to look a bit tame and a bit dull? But actually, you know, to watch Villa Park back again, to watch obviously the final back again, to watch you know, um, watch Turin. I mean, I have to say the Turin. The first half of Turin away, you know, I mean, I was like, you know, <laughs> getting the hairs on, the, you know, I was, you, you suddenly find yourself wrapped up in it again, thinking, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? It's, it's, yeah, they're, and when a game stands the test of time like that, that you can watch it back again and be gripped more than 20 years later, then, you know, you know, you've been at something very special. I mean, it's incredible, actually, if you think about it, not many teams will ever come back from one goal down with 88 minutes to go once every 10 years and we, we did it twice in the season or the Liverpool game will forever be my shame because after that first goal went in we equalized my dad was like right we got to go because I think we had to it's go okay. somewhere and I was too young to say no so <laughs> we ended up seeing the highlight the, the second goal in the concourse just on the tv and I uh, didn't well. forgive my dad for that one for a while but um but yeah um so we're talking about the games and a couple of big games stick out so we obviously have the FA Cup semi-final which for a lot of people's money and mine is one of the greatest games of English football 
certainly in the modern era, certainly in my time following football. Um, I assume that's one of the ones you did go watch 90 minutes of because what, what a great excuse to go watch 90 minutes of that game. Well, um, well, oh, yeah, 120. Was it? Yes, 120, 120, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And I think yeah. I mentioned that, you know, even Tony Admin. So, you know, I want, again, we talked about bringing in the different chapters, different characters, spoke to Tony Adams for that one because I just wanted a different perspective on on it. And, yeah, he he talks about, you know, he goes... Um, goes after the game to see his sister and, you know, obviously he's just lost, you know, their hopes of a double have just gone up in smoke. He's absolutely gutted. And the first thing his sister says is basically what an amazing game. You know, it wasn't like, sorry, you lost or, you know, the referee was a git or whatever. It's just like, wow, what a, what a night. And that just shows you, you know, even, even the sort of vanquished team were just thinking that I think there's a times on a pitch where, you know, sports people, suddenly know yeah, they know they're involved in something that's beyond the ordinary and that was a night when you know i mean it was just electric from start i mean it, i think it's, it felt like you know the uh the heavyweight championship of the world didn't it it was like it wasn't just a it wasn't just an fa cup tie this was like who is the best team out there and you know it's going to be a 12 round slug fest to find out basically yeah, we missed the days of the the Man United Arsenal rivalry. It was very intense back then, as you've detailed in the book. Um, is that your favourite Premier League rivalry? Do you think? Well, I think it is because the, the you know I think the the managerial rivalry was so fascinating. You know, Fergie and Wenger was not just professional; that was personal as well. Um, you know that bec- and and the, right at the start of it, you know it was just blowing up then, and and uh, and I think the way that the there was a physicality to the, you know, I think the combination of styles made for a brilliant rivalry on the pitch as well. The fact that, you know, and um, Gary Neville was basically, he he was very explicit that um, he thinks that the 98, going into 99, Arsenal team was the hardest they faced because, you know, they were, they were so tough and powerful and physical as well. Obviously, Vieira and Petit coming in, they didn't yet, you know, they had more speed in uh, in Overmars and and I think he found that basically the the later teams you could they could bully a bit you know and Gary Gary in particular was one of those who who set about that bullying but I think they you know that ninety eight to sort of ninety nine time and you know it was the the league title was decided by a you know a fraction basically so I think for all sorts of reasons you know and I, you know basically you uh, you got to sort of believe what these players tell you and they tell you that that was that rivalry at its most intense and at its most ferocious. And there was, you know, so little to separate, uh, you know, so little to separate the teams. I mean, Arsenal still feel like, you know, could have, they could have done back-to-back doubles, you know, they were a fraction away. Mm. I would say it's worth picking up the book for all these different viewpoints of our players. I said like Arsenal players later by Munich, but their viewpoint on how these games went and just, I mean, Paul Scholes touched on his um, his performances and in his typical Scholes self-deprecating way. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Um, obviously, another big game. Then we go on to the Turing game, as you said, like incredible stuff. Um, what was that like? Um, one being there at the time, but like going back there, did it bring it all again? Just bring it all back. I'm basically just here to talk about the good times. That's all. <laughs> yeah, well, understand. I mean, it was good. It was just great fun to go back. I mean, I remember. I've got, I mean, I've got mixed memories of uh, Turin because the stadium, um, any fan will know who went there. I mean, the stadium was was managed to be both quite new and an absolute shambles, basically. <laughs> it was um, Stadio dell'Alpi. It was, it only been built in the 90, for the 1990 World Cup and was already sort of falling apart, you know, nine years later. And uh, it was, so basically, you know, I mean, the world's smallest violin is going to come out for this, but the, there were basically the technology didn't work there either. And this was again pre Wi Fi and pre, you know. So I had the world's worst night trying to um, get my copy, file, yeah, write my copy and file it and stuff. So this absolute epic of a match going on, and I'm basically <laughs> punching my lap, you know, if it was even called a laptop then. Um, but it was just, uh, I think, say that half, the first half in particular, to go back and watch it is like, you know, it's, you know, obviously famously um, United go 2-0 down. And I think I write in the book at that stage, we are, I've literally started typing into my, you know, another another European campaign over. I think I turned to my colleague at the time and just said, oh, well, that's that, you know, that's that then. Um, and, you know, we're talking, we're talking to, you're talking Juventus away. Juventus have been to three consecutive European Cup finals. We're talking mm. Zidane and Deschamps and Davids and, you know, and Conte, who was just as mad on the pitch then as um, he's now he's now on the sidelines um, managing Tottenham. Um, but yeah, they were an absolute top team. And the idea that anyone could come back from 2-0 down after 20 minutes was pretty much unthinkable. But United did it. And, uh, you know, they, they by half time, they were not just back in the game, but dominant and flying. And uh, it was just, um, you know, there's a picture of... Uh, Gary always talks of Neville always talks about a picture of him and Beckham at the end of that game. That the two of them are sort of arm in arm. I think they might be holding their badges and stuff. And he says that's possibly his favourite picture ever from football, just because this was the night when they just took that next step. And I think as they walked off that, they just knew this is, you know, I think it had happened at the Villa Park, and then to do that and then lurch straight onto Turin. I just think they knew. This is there's something in the air here. There is something that is going on, and um, we've got to make the most of it. Well, speaking of giant rewrites, is there a bigger rewrite in the history of sport than the 1999 Champions League final? Uh, never has been, never will be. Um, so those, you know, without being too technical, so if people don't know, I mean, and it's still the, the, case, the case now, even with you know, technology has not changed the fact that. You know, as a reporter, if you are covering a night match, you are you have to have a report for the first edition of the newspapers over at the whistle, not 10 minutes after it's got to be at the whistle. So that basically means that you you are writing from the first minute. You know, you you have a chunk um, done by half time and you during the second half, you're watching the game. That's why you need to touch type because you're sort of watching the game while rattling away. So. After 89 minutes in the new camp, I have sent already sent a thousand words on how Fergie sort of basically screwed up the tactics, put gigs on the right. What was he thinking? You know, um, had he picked the wrong team? Blomquist has had a, um, had a nightmare. He's not been in good form. His confidence was gone. 
and you know the damp squib so you know we've all and i'm not the only you know, we've all sent our stuff um after nine after 89 90 minutes and then teddy sharon equalizes and it's like oh well well amazing it's it's one all we're gonna have extra time we've got another 30 minutes to sort of you know get our heads straight and get our get our match report sorted out and of course bang um the most famous monday night goal in history one of the most famous goals ever in history flies in off uh Solskjaer's boot and at, at that point you know is the greatest noise you've ever heard um but that which would have drowned out the screams in the press box of oh my god i've got about uh, 30 seconds to describe the most amazing football story in uh, in history okay I, I can't imagine the contrast between i am witnessing football history with i need to do my job <laughs> <laughs> well it is i mean it's sort of like and there is that sort of there's nowhere else I want to be on earth than this. And I'm lucky to be doing this job. And at the same time, you know, I am absolutely gripped with panic. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, the thing the turnaround came in 102 seconds and we've got less time than that to sort of try and describe it. So I have to say, you know, I mean, I made a complete, which is sort of partly again, why I went to write the book. I, 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 I'm not particularly proud of, my sort of muddled attempt to put it right. I have to say, reading back some of my colleagues, you know, they did a they did a much better job on the night. But it was you were just full of adrenaline. I mean, you know, you, you couldn't be in that stadium and not be full of adrenaline. But as a reporter, yeah, you suddenly had this challenge of like, how how am I going to put this into words? I can I can barely believe what I've seen. Never mind, you know, explain it very well. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, you sort of hope that you hope to use that adrenaline to to find the words to describe. Um, uh, I mean, I think actually the German, I spoke to the German commentator and I think, you know, um, he's, he actually said he stopped talking on German uh, TV because he said that, I think he said, you know, how do you describe the indescribable? It was like there was, there was nothing to be said. It was just shock and awe, basically. Well, I wouldn't too worry too much about your article. It's not like um, it's not like <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like thirteen-year-old boys were going out to buy every single paper the day after and then saving them for the rest of their life. it's and it's uh, it's famously chip paper uh, within twenty-four hours. But no, it was. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, there, there is one hundred percent nowhere else you want. You know, I mean, that's one of those nights where you know, say we're still talking about it now, and and I'm still writing a book about it now, and and it's it's. I have to say, I watched that back for the book. I must have watched that back a hundred times. Those those three minutes, and I've got teenage sons now, and I, you know, made made them sit down and watch it. And to be fair, they were just like proper goosebumps. You know, even even just watching that back now on any day, I think it's impossible to watch it without having goosebumps because it's it is such a you know not. To win any game like that would, you know, is mad. To win the Champions League final, that clinches the treble, that ends all those years of striving. Because that's the other thing people, you know, I hope it comes over in the book. People have to realise just how how much has gone into trying and failing to get this European crown back. You know, it had been years of of of, of failure and, and, mm. and you know, um, I'm wondering if it's ever going to be done. So... You know, so so much emotion and um, was was invested in this. Yeah, well, I've I've saved the biggest character for last, and that is Sir Alex Ferguson, of course. Um, I mean, the book actually starts with, and I didn't know this, um, and I won't get too much work in the book, but 
a, a very frank conversation between him and our chairman at the time, Martin Edwards, um, about Fergie's commitment to the club. And I didn't even know that was a thing. So, but then you, throughout the book, you just see like what an impact he has on every single player, on every single facet of Man United. Um, and then obviously to get this crown of glory, will there be an ever, ever be another like Sir Alex Ferguson? I don't think there there will be because I don't think it's almost I don't think it's actually possible for there to be another Alex Ferguson. The way he ran a club from top to bottom is just it doesn't happen now. I mean, you, you know, we we talk about uh, started off obviously the conversation about you know, where United are now, and you know that the, the, any club now, you know, you can have a big manager who's a big character and and you know his his presence is felt everywhere in a club. I'm sure at Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp is you know his presence dominates that club but he wouldn't expect to run you know every single department the way you know they have their own recruitment department that is you know got a huge team itself now that's and and it wasn't it wasn't like that then you know Alex Ferguson knew everything and everyone who was inside that club he you know he he was in at seven o'clock every morning on top of it, I mean, I talk about it. this was the old cliff train. This was the last year at the cliff training ground, which you go back to now and you can't believe that <laughs> the greatest team ever came from it, you know. But that was fascinating in itself because it was this tiny, crammed, cramped training ground. And that meant everyone knew everyone else's business. And you can be sure that Alex Ferguson knew everyone else's business there as well. And he, he was um, just the most... The most uh, well, uh, and I hope again this comes through tactically. These were quite basic times. This was not you know, Pep Guardiola football, where he is you know intricately moving someone three yards and talking about you know right we switch from you know four two three one to two three five. You know and, you know there, there was not that choreography now. That Ferguson was not some you know guy who reinvented tactics. Above all, he was a psychologist and a motivator. Um, but he did that in a way that is, I think, untouched, will perhaps never be touched. He was a genius at it. He knew how to put fire in the bellies. He knew how to smell when a player's mood wasn't quite right or when their confidence wasn't right, quite right. It doesn't mean to say he didn't know footballers and understand it. You know, he knew when, OK, right, we need Nicky Butt for this game, not Paul Scholes, or we need Teddy Sheringham for this one, not, you know, Dwight York, whatever. You know, he was smart, but... I think his ability to tap into people was very, very special. And that's what kept him. I mean, I remember Roy Keane. I mean, obviously him and Roy Keane ended up having a big dust up. But I remember Roy Keane summing it up and saying, you know, Alex Ferguson knew what to say every day for 25 years at Man United, whether that was a bollocking because he felt the mood had got too complacent or whether it was a bit of empathy because he could see someone was having a hard time or whether it was, you know, giving someone a few days off because he could just see that they were frazzled to, to, to understand instinctively what to do and what to say, you know, all the time, you know, not saying he never got it wrong, but it's a very special quality of people skills to have. And uh, I think that that was what distinguished him. Mm. And uh, obviously just the greatest uh, achievement in this club's history um, in English football history, we said the treble, uh, will we see it again? Do you think? Well, I mean, it's almost a surprise we haven't. I mean, obviously, as I say, City, you know, City two seasons ago looked absolutely well set for the quadruple. Um, and then obviously they, they lose an FA Cup semi-final and ultimately the Champions League final as well. Liverpool last season 
you know, I mean, basically when City were losing on the final day of the league season, I was actually thinking, oh my God, am I going to have to rewrite this book um, and take out words like unprecedented and historic? Um, I have to say, yeah, when they were City were 2-0 down and to Aston Villa, I was thinking, um, yeah, this could be the yeah the biggest rewrite since since 1999, <laughs> basically. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this, you know, we are in an age of super clubs now where, you know, there is this huge wealth which can hoover up talent. And I think partly because of that, we're, it is a surprise. I mean, I guess the one th- difference between England and other leagues is that we do have a very competitive league. So even if a city is flying high, there is a Liverpool chasing them down or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the what you know, but yeah, I mean, clubs keep getting close and falling tantalizingly short. And um, I think it underlines how just underlines how special the achievement was. And and you know, United were it was see at the pants so many games and you know, the ability to make those fine margins work for them again comes back to the partly the skill, but as much the character of a very special group of players. I mean, you put it the stats. There's a bunch of stats at the back of the book, which I quite like, and you can see all the the results and times and all the things. But the fact that United didn't lose a single game after the Middlesbrough defeat in December, the first, and the only team still in England to have not lost a single game in any competition at the back end of the season, it's very impressive. Um, and that's why this team, for me, obviously one of the greatest teams ever. Um, there was obviously debates and stuff, but this is a United podcast, so we're not going to get into those debates. This is the greatest <laughs> team ever. Um, one other thing I just wanted to ask you about is so throughout the book as well, which I quite like as a quite little uh, break from the football is just other things that are going on around the time, especially in nineties, like um, whether that be new labor or um, cool Britannia, these things. And how important was it for you to like include those sort of things and to capture the, the, the era, if you will. Yeah, really important. I mean, basically, you know, I was, you know, um, Brought up in the south, and then I got the job um, in the mid '90s doing the Manchester beat, and I moved moved up. I didn't know Manchester really at all, and I I, I, mean, I fell in love with the place, and I I got swept along. With, it, it was the coolest, you know. I think all right, it's, I right. I can't think there was a cooler place to to live. I mean, I know obviously the whole Manchester thing had started, you know, before then, but you know, I felt like I just arrived in this place that was. You know, erupting on so many levels. The you know the music was cooler. The football team was, you know, the biggest and best. The fast it was fashionable. It was you know, um, I loved it. I say I absolutely fell for the place, and and so I wanted to capture that. I wanted to cap the, capture the spirit of Manchester itself and the city and the vibrancy of it. I wanted to, you know, I think they were fascinating times. Um, there, as you mentioned, Britpop and so on. There was a a different air at the time and and it was amazing to look back and just as you mentioned new labor alex ferguson was massively entwined with new labor so you know it, it was also a time when football in the 90s had totally changed profile you know it'd gone from you know the 80s and hooliganism and the horrors of heisel and horrors of hillsborough to you know this sort of new premier league you know um yeah it just took a different place in society it suddenly became you know, mainstream and popular and, and the whole boom was taken off and United were driving that boom. That's the other thing, you know, United United were just way ahead of every other club in every aspect, you know, in terms of the, the profile and the scale and the popularity. And I, I think there's a mini chapter about they were so popular that that spawned ABU, you know, mm-hmm. anyone but United. So I just wanted to 
yeah, bring all of it together. You know, I was there lucky enough to be at um, Main Road watching Oasis. That's like felt like a sort of moment of the 90s, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to bring all that in because as I reflected on the story, that was part of the joy of it all as well, that this Manchester had felt like to me had the best of everything, you know, had the best music, had the best football team, had the best nightclubs, had, you know, why... Um, uh, again, that's, I, I feel like I was, you know, do doubly privileged to um, to have all that as well. Well, Matt, thanks for joining. Congratulations on the book. It's a great read. I can't recommend it enough to everyone, as well as all the anecdotes we've talked about. There's loads more. There's about the B-Sky B takeover. You get behind the scenes um, anecdotes from various players who you don't even think about. There's stuff on David Ellery. If you're really a bigger David Ellery fan, there's some, something for you there. Honestly, it is a fantastic um read about one of the greatest seasons in football history and as a as a united podcast for any man united fan i cannot recommend it enough it's out now and you can get it from all your good look uh, book places amazon wherever get it now um it's a really great read you won't regret it um congratulations matt and uh, thanks so much for joining us no well thank you i really appreciate the invite and yeah i just hope um i hope i've just conveyed the fun of writing it and the fun of covering it and the fun of looking back on it because they were just they were great times very special times and uh yeah if that's if that sort of joy has come through and that's how it felt for the players looking back as well so no i appreciate um it's been a pleasure to talk yeah well listen it's been such a joy that i've not been um put off by the fact that england have just tumbled wickets while during this <laughs> entire conversation so uh, it's been great thanks matt cheers yeah, a huge thank you to Matt there for joining us on the pod. If you want to give him a follow, you can follow him at Dickinson Times on Twitter. That's at Dickinson Times on Twitter. And yeah, his book is out now, available in all good and bad bookshops. Um, it's a great read, like I said, on the pod. And yeah, just seek it out. It's a really, really good uh, read about one of the best periods of United's history. Um, before we go, just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Manscaped, as always. That's manscaped.com your go-to place for all the below and above waist grooming needs. They now have a face razor as well as the razor for downstairs. So they've got everything you could possibly need for male grooming. And if you go there and give the code UNITEDHOUR20, you can get free shipping and 20% off your order. That's UNITEDHOUR20 for free shipping and 20% off. That's manscaped.com for all your needs. And that's it for the pod. Make sure you join us next week after the Liverpool game. We'll be talking about that game and what looks like the impending arrival of Casemiro. Uh, no spoilers for what I think. You'll have to find out that on the next pod. Um, but yeah, until then, cheers, everybody. United Hour is part of the Sports Social Network. Edited by Imran Lahair. And our theme song is by Ancient Feelings. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter, United underscore hour, or email us at unitedhour at gmail.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.